This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's talk about the virus, where we are, and especially who it's affecting. And it is affecting certain populations disproportionately, that is for sure. Dr. Ken Redcross joins us, founder of Red Cross Concierge. He's a board-certified internal medicine physician, also an author, joining us on the phone from L.A. Dr. Redcross, really nice to have you with us. Thank you, Jason. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on, guys. We're really uh, grateful to you for spending some time with us because this is a really important issue. You know, when this pandemic started, we felt like, I think in many ways, well, this is indiscriminate. You know, this is a, you know, a virus doesn't see color. It doesn't see income. And yet we know that ultimately, in reality, that's not true. And we've certainly learned that lesson. And I know you have watched that very closely. Tell us what you found. Yeah, you know, Jason, that's an important point. You're right. Most viruses in this case, they're, they're agnostic. They don't care, right? But what's happened this time is that COVID-19 has really shined a big, big light on the healthcare disparities that we have here in the United States between those who are minorities and those who are not. And so we're seeing that kind of uh, break out into different little sessions now because of the differences in the disparities that we're seeing. And it's been, it's been pretty stark. I guess the question is why? We've heard many different explanations. It, is it the jobs? Is it access to health care pre-this? Is it pre-existing conditions? What are some of the reasons? You know, Alex, actually, it's, it's a little bit of everything you said. So, look, think about it this way. There's a, there's a medical side to this because the disease states that are really affecting those who get the coronavirus, such as diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, and also obesity, are very common in the minority community, especially African-American community. Then on the second side of your question there, Alex, we have those socioeconomic issues such as access to health care, such as income equality, such as issues with housing. That's when we get to the point where I always say that in those areas, social distancing is an absolute luxury, right? It can't happen. And so when you have all of those things come together, Alex, it's almost like a, a perfect storm. So talk to us specifically about black communities, if you will, Dr. Red Cross, because sure. we have seen some of that data, uh, you know, sort of take us down a level in terms of the data and, and help us understand some of those issues that, that you were just describing and specifically in black communities. Yeah. So look, everyone. So it's, it's important to, to understand. Look, as they always say, you know, united is what we should be. Right. Because if you're divided, we fall. And this is even more important because even if you're not African-American, these uh, these health care disparities affect all of us, because whether it be on the health care system, the cost, I know this is a, a financial um, a financial station and those things impact us all. But when you're talking about what's going on in the community with those disease states that are in there, which all of them are associated with vitamin D deficiency as well. So it's important to hit in on that as well, because vitamin D, guys, is not a treatment for the coronavirus. But what it does hit home is the importance of the immune system. And all these disease states that Alex asked me about when she says, well, why is this? All of those are affected by the immune system. And in our community, in the African-American community, we have been hit so, so hard. In fact, 
if you look at some of the studies out there, it says only about 20% of African Americans can actually telework. That just gives you a little bit of an idea of the sort of jobs that a lot of African Americans have and how hard that is to kind of stay out of harm's way in addition to balancing your healthcare access as well. So let me ask, there's been conversations on how you distribute the vaccine. And obviously, yeah. you know, uh, those essential workers like, say, health care workers, nurses, doctors will get it first. But then there's been conversations around minority communities like the black community. Um, yeah. Is that a, do, do we want that? Because there's also a downside, I would think. Well, we, we do, but there's a couple of challenges. So the big challenge is, is that if you're starting to find out, a lot of the vaccine companies are having a very hard time signing up minorities. They're having a hard time signing up minorities, number one. It's back to that access issue. But it's also, Alex, because of some of the history that has been there with African Americans in the medical community, all the way back to the Tuskegee experiment right. in the 1930s to 40s. You may think, guys, gosh, that's almost, that's almost 50 years ago. But believe it or not, it still runs rampant in the African American community to talk about, you know, I don't know if I'm going to take that vaccine. Remember Tuskegee experiment? I mean, those sort of things and skepticism are things that need to be faced head on as well. So the vaccine, when it comes, it needs to be tested in everyone. You can't test it in one group. Um, So that's why it's so important to make sure there's an education piece for a lot of the minorities to really work on the skepticism and where we're headed with this vaccine and when we'll get the vaccine. And so what is the right message then, especially to black and African-American communities around vaccines? What what are you saying to, to folks to convince them? Well, one of the things that, you know, I, I, you had mentioned, I, I wrote my book earlier called Bond. And the important thing there, never what I have known would be something we talk about in a pandemic, but my whole my whole passion is the patient doctor relationship. So it's those four things that are very important. Trust, respect empathy and communication especially in our community when you you have to be trusted in order for me to to put a vaccine in you right right? for us to have that discussion then there needs to be an equal respect to say hey look it doesn't really matter how much melanin you have in your skin your life matters your health also matters and then there has to be a feeling of empathy it's important that we understand that you that you really understand kind of the struggles that we have each and every day that most of my friends and myself have been through Um, as an African-American male. And then that communication piece is key. You need to be able to sit down with that person and kind of talk eye to eye uh, and really communicate what you want to do and why it's so important for all of us. And Dr. Redcross, you had talked a a little bit about vitamin D. Tell us more about that because I feel like D is one of these things where every time I go for my checkup, I get told I'm deficient. And then I feel like I read that everybody's deficient and maybe we shouldn't worry about it, but maybe we should. Like, what's the latest science here? Well, I'll tell you. So it, it seems like, and you're right, the, as, as the world starts to kind of wake up to the importance of the message of vitamin D, it does seem that a lot of us are deficient. But in the African-American community, it's about 80% deficiency. Wow. In the Hispanic community, about 70 um, And people may say, well, what does that kind of matter? Like I mentioned before, those disease states, whether it be heart disease, lung disease, and also I'll bring in obesity, they're all associated with lower vitamin D levels, which gives us a reason to think What would happen if those vitamin D levels were optimal, guys? Where would that actually be? And the NIH even had a report that vitamin D deficiency could actually even be a plausible explanation for a higher mortality. Potentially, a lot of these studies are going on, but we see it clinically, and it's something that's easy to take and something that luckily is also inexpensive as well. 
Okay, so before we move on to like why it's not getting more widespread adoption, can you explain yeah. to me what is vitamin D? Sure. So vitamin D, everyone, that's, um, you know, that, that's nature's vitamin. That comes from the sun. It just shows you how amazing our, our bodies are, everyone, that we actually make really not even a vitamin. It's really a hormone. It's a pro-hormone, and that's how important it is for our bodies. But we used to think it was all about bone health, but now we're learning vitamin D does so much more, especially when it comes to immunity. In fact, when you look at the, the levels you're supposed to have for your vitamin D, I, I kind of wear an Eastern medicine hat, guys, and a Western medicine hat. So my Western medicine hat tells you it's supposed to be around 30. But when you look at the Eastern medicine and some of the newer studies, our levels should be between 40 and 60. That's oh. the whole point of making sure we talk about this because I wanted to challenge everyone for a call to action to go to your doctor and get your vitamin D level checked or you can even go to a website such as powerofd.org where you can order at-home test kits. So that way, Alex, everyone can kind of see where they are on their levels. And as I like to say, get on my level is kind of the campaign I'm working with. And so just taking it sort of broader as we wrap up uh, about the the virus, what's your biggest concern uh, going into the fall? We got kids going back to school, people increasingly going yeah. back to the office. What's your best advice and what's your be- your biggest concern here? Okay, everyone. So, look, there's one blessing that is out there. Number one, unfortunately, we're seeing as the kids go by, the levels are going up a bit. But we've never used this much PPE and talked about hand washing ever than we have before this flu season coming. So that's one little thing to look forward to. But in going forward, we're going to continue practicing those things and look into things such as vitamin D, which is good for the entire family. You can talk to your pediatrician about that. There's so much information going on about the benefits of vitamin D that we all can take advantage of because here, especially in the Northeast, I'm actually in New York now, guys. I moved back to New York. Ah, okay. Um, in, the, in the Northeast, we don't get that sunlight for four or five months. So take advantage of what nature knows is important and recognize that almost every immune cell in our body has a receptor for vitamin D, which really lets us know how important it is for our health and our overall immunity. All right. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say we really appreciate Dr. Ken Redcross, founder of Redcross Concierge. His book, Bond, it is the four cornerstones of a lasting and caring relationship with your doctor. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, time to do a little Business Week economics. Excited to have with us, as we often do. Andy Brown, Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy, joins us on the phone from New York City. And Andy, this is your column is such a perfect companion piece to a conversation that we had last week um, with Peter Outwater talking about the K-shaped recovery, because mm-hmm. I feel like you provide a lot of rich new material for that entire argument. And the headline really says it all. The rich stay home and the poor get poorer. Tell us what you set out to do. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the central feature of the government's response all over the world to, to COVID-19 has been lockdown, right? So basically, the wealthy aren't going to the office, um, they aren't traveling on business, and this has been absolutely 
devastating for workers all over the world who look after the relatively rich when they're on the road or in the office. They, 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 they feed them, they make sure they're lodged and shod and clothed and groomed and otherwise pampered and, and fussed over. One in four American workers is actually engaged in delivering these kinds of personal services and just suddenly that whole industry um, came to a standstill. How quickly, do you have a sense yet on how quickly things like that come back? As if once we get whatever letter we are in here, K, V, W, L, shape recovery, is it a one for one or are we going to do less? With these jobs. You know, it was interesting. I was just talking just just a few minutes ago to Tom Layton, who's the CEO of Akamai. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they deliver a chunk of, of, of internet traffic all over the world. He, he said, he just told me, he said a majority of jobs, um, uh, of office workers, he thinks will not go back permanently, that they will, you know, stay at home for at least part of the time. Airlines, I think, is, I think it's dawning on airlines that, that business travel is not going to snap back, that executives aren't, aren't going to go back to sort of jumping on a plane to, for a one-hour meeting to, to in Singapore mm-hmm. or Rio or something. Um, you know, so, so this, is, this is really, uh, this, is a, this is a permanent condition. And, and don't forget, so this is, this is on top of the health problems that these workers, these frontline workers have suffered. They've, you know, they, they, they've had the, the, the bulk of the infection. Uh, many, have, many have died in this, and now they're suffering from this economic catastrophe. And many are women, many are minorities, and all over the world, many are migrants, internal migrants as well as international migrants. They're taking the brunt of this. And so how do we measure this and how do we get our arms around the the scope andy especially when it comes to the the poorer portion of the population it's it's huge i mean you know when you talk about um working from home um or going jumping on a a zoom call and instead of uh, leaving on an airplane basically this is aspects of digitization yeah uh, and, and digitization is just accelerating at an astonishing pace. I mean, uh, 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 Tom Layton told me internet traffic he's seen has doubled during this pandemic. And what that tells us is that whole industries are now migrating online, both health, everything from healthcare to manufacturing, um, you know, uh, delivery. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of uh, commercial activity is, is is now being digitized. Robots are cleaning windows. Cameras are replacing, um, you, you, you know, security guards. Drones delivering packages. Cutting machines replacing uh, meat packers. This is this is absolutely huge. And of course, the lot the loss of of the travel market is yeah. going to devastate whole economies. I mean, Mexico it gets something like ten fifteen percent of its GDP out of out of tourism. Some of these smaller island economies. And Aruba, or Mauritius, Seychelles, mm. and so on. I mean, it's 80, 90 percent of the of the economy. So this this travel market dry, uh, drying up is is devastating for, for for entire communities and whole whole countries. For to just focus on the U.S. for a second, and then I mean, maybe this will apply to other countries as well. Is, is this what has delayed the reaction function of the Phillips curve? And I wonder if the pandemic makes it so much worse because wages can't recover. Any increase you may see in wages on the, it will come on that lower end and won't have that same kind of impact. Like, is there a connection to be made? Yeah, you know, I, I think... 
I think this COVID-19 and the impact that it's had on work has just given the mist of this idea that, that workers were on a big roll before the pandemic. And it's, it was true. You know, there, there was something of a, of a jobs boom going on. But the reality is that many of those jobs were low pay, low hours, low quality. They didn't have social benefits. Um, you know, and, and they were precarious. And now the precariat um, all over the world, is, as these rank-and-file workers are, are, are called, um, you know, their, their livelihoods have just, have just gone off the edge of a cliff. So what's the policy, what's the right policy response here from the folks that you talk to, Andy, and from your own thinking about this? Yeah, well, so when you talk to the economists, um, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about universal basic income. I mean, this, this was a fringe idea and is now mainstream. I mean, Andrew Yang ran a whole campaign right. uh, on this, you know, thousand buck a month freedom dividend. Lots of talk about um, big infrastructure projects. I think that really is going to be crucial, huge public works projects. Plenty of optimistic talk about, you know, how um, the digital economy is going to produce jobs. People will need to service the robots. Um, they're going to need to collect data. There's still quite a, a lot of human effort needed to collect the kind of feedstock data that uses that a artificial intelligence use in their algorithms. And this is, you know, this is all true. But this retraining story is a very complicated one. I right. mean, in China, as an example, something like 25% of all rural young people, and they are the ones that are doing the, these these rank and file jobs, don't even have a secondary. Only 25% have a secondary school education. So retraining is mm-hmm. tough. Um, you know, what you hear from, from, from economists like Larry Summers, um, you know, former Obama uh, yeah. economic advisor, saying, you know, what, what, basically what you need is to give workers more power, more bargaining right. power, so that they can get a, they can get a, 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 a higher proportion of national income. The implications yeah. of that are, are obvious yeah. uh, in the U.S. as in the developing world. We really appreciate it. As always, Andy Brown, Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. If I want to try and draw big conclusions between the market and politics and everything that I'm feeling, the one person I always turn to is John Authors. He's a senior editor uh, for Bloomberg Markets. Uh, before Bloomberg, he spent 29 years at the Financial Times and does amazing work for us. Uh, John, you had a great piece out overnight that talked about Trump's chances in the polls, uh, particularly also Republicans in the Senate, and how that relates to the violence that we've seen in Portland and Kenosha. And I was hoping you could kind of break it down for us. Yes. Uh, What is interesting is that uh, prediction markets, uh, which are either markets where you trade futures tied to a political outcome or straightforward sports-style spread betting markets where you're betting on a a political election, both are suggesting the market, the uh, election has really tightened up so that it's an absolute dead heat. And that's happened basically in the last week. Nothing in the polls suggests that there should be anything as direct as that. So it suggests that a lot of the people who are putting money behind this really think that something changed last week with Kenosha. And we've seen some research, and there's been a lot of excitement today about a, a note out from Marco Kolonovich of uh, mm-hmm. JP Morgan basically making that exact case that um, for some reason the reaction to the George Floyd killing back in the end of 
May was seen to help the Democrats. But what we've seen in the last few days, if the prediction markets are right, is seen to be helping uh, is seen to be helping Trump and the Republicans. And what accounts for that, John? I mean, what's the play that out for us? And, and why does it why does it uh, potentially benefit the president here? Uh, well, the, plainly, there's a very real possibility that the prediction markets are just wrong about this. Let's, okay. but, but so, having said that, first, um, I guess the key point here is the belief that uh, that the uh, the public is now prepared to blame the Democrats for what is happening, and that they see the recent cycle of violence, which included you know, outright deaths in, uh, in Kenosha and in, in uh, Portland as being much more dangerous, much less sympathetic. Mm-hmm. I personally don't quite get that. I mean, if you've seen, you've certainly seen that Black Lives Matter's support has peaked and declined somewhat in the last month, which is not particularly surprising, but I, I, I don't myself see that you would expect you know, the, the shocking scenes that we saw in, uh, uh, in Kenosha, both, from, uh, both on the, the, the original uh, police shooting and, the, and then the awful events a couple of nights later. I, I don't myself see quite why they, would, why they are held to be uh, helping the Republicans mm-hmm. quite as clearly as the, uh, as the markets evidently, evidently think. Well, I also, I mean, there was definitely a rhetoric that the Democrats did not address this law and order theme in the DNC and that they should have in Mm. some capacity to acknowledge that it's happening um, rather than just come back at President Trump. So there 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 was that was was percolating a little bit. Um, And, John, what I also thought was interesting, too, is that sort of the outbreaks in the Sunbelt states started to get under control. And I have to wonder in your research that you do, like, is there a hey, hey, we can deal with this. It may not be as bad as we thought. Yes. Now, that's that's the other. Obviously, the two big events that have happened this year in American politics have been the pandemic and uh, the resurgence of, of Black Lives Matter. Yes. In the last month, the second wave, if you want to call that the Sun Belt wave, has receded. And in certainly in terms of deaths, it never got as bad as the first wave that we all lived through up here in New York. Um, that could if you extrapolate for another two months, if the virus continues to keep coming under control, a lot of the time when you look at elections, um, incumbents can get in, in a bad situation if people feel that things are getting better in the last few months before the election. That was true of Margaret Thatcher in 83 and Ronald Reagan in 84, both of whom were still overseeing very poor economies, but people felt they were definitely getting better. If you have the same situation with the virus, and I I guess the critical question is, can we reopen schools without um, opening the opening the the bottle, letting the the genie or the virus out of the bottle again, then you could have a really strong sense of things are getting better as we get to election day, which plainly always helps an incumbent. And that is another belief that is out there in the the markets. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a super smart column. And Alex, you teed John up so nicely. I 
I think about him exactly the same way that when I want to understand this Thanks. nexus, he is the guy we turn to. John Author, senior editor for Bloomberg Markets, a Bloomberg opinion columnist as well. Check that out on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Really fortunate to have back with us our pal Hillary Kramer, president and chief investment officer of a Capital Research. Also the author of a terrific book, Game Changer Investing, How to Profit from Tomorrow's Billion Dollar Trends. She joins us on the phone from New Jersey. Hillary, how are you? It's been a while. Yes, Jason. It has been a while. And I am, I am stunned, as is my team, that the market continues, well, NASDAQ continues to rise. And we are just, you know, kind of beside ourselves thinking that Tesla could be up more than 10% simply because it starts, you know, trading on a split adjusted basis and Apple up uh, 4%. It's just, Really, uh, kind of incredible. But so, how do you make se- <laughs> how do you make sense of that? I mean, how do you sort of break it down? Because you're incredibly analytical, and I know you have a team that is is like you. So, h- how do you how do you explain it? Well, what we see is that it's just euphoria. It's it's simply you have, you have just have so much much momentum in the market, and. Um, Apple just keeps going up. No one wants to miss it. I mean, it's kind of a herd mentality if there has ever been one. And the same with Tesla. And and for those that don't realize, Tesla is up 1,010% in the last 52 weeks. I mean, that's kind of amazing. You know, I mean, these kind of numbers. Apple is only up I mean, only 152% in the last 52 weeks. Of course, if you bought at the wrong time or the right time, you're a millionaire or you're lost. But uh, we, really, we really think that there's just also been so much liquidity in the market. Yeah. And it's just been an easy money environment that has just forced people to not realize that this can end so badly so badly and it can be so quick and they can get burned um and what is going to what's going to do it um you know anything anything and it's gonna when it happens it'll be so fast you know no one can really get out quick enough but i guess i mean i guess we saw that right like we we saw the worst case scenario unfold in in march with the pandemic and the sell-off and it didn't happen and it didn't stay because of the swift government action and the fed's government action as well which begs the question how can you not buy apple how can you not buy tesla how can you not buy the fangs well because the growth just couldn't possibly keep up alex and I know you're asking it rhetorically on some level, I think, but the growth could never possibly keep up with the stock price. Stock prices are based on growth, and they're based on expectations of growth in the future. And right now, we are talking about major layoffs, bankruptcies, 
all one has to do is go to an airport, you know, and you'll and and see seventy percent decrease in in travel traffic. All you have to do is go to a car dealership, and whatever's on that sticker is meaningless today. It's about moving those those vehicles, and the market is looking for any good move, good good news. Like for example. There could be a phase one trade deal between the U.S. and China, right? And that lifts the market today. Um, or, or what about uh, the emergency, the possible emergency um, allowance for coronavirus vaccine even before phase three is finished? I don't know. The market thinks that that is really good news. And and so what about the consumer, Hillary? Because I feel like so much of what investors are buying into is this notion of there will be a vaccine, consumers will get back to spending, and everything's going to be okay, at least in, in some of those consumer names. Do you buy that? No, the consumer isn't going to keep buying. There's just been a lot of money because of the, I'll be honest, it's the $600 yeah. that went every single week to not just furloughed and laid off employees that have W-2s, but those that work for themselves and 1099s. So we had checks going up for unemployment. We had $600 a week, and now we're in a total, absolute stalemate. You're talking $1.2 trillion the White House is willing to spend on this phase five of the coronavirus um, um, allowance of money that's going right. to go out, and, and versus now, you know, Pelosi's down at I think three point three trillion. Right. You know, from five trillion. There's a massive, massive I mean you could drive, you know, major trucks through that differential. So that could be the spark that's the problem. We also have, you know, we're gonna know what the unemployment rate is on Friday, but I'm guessing it's gonna drop below ten percent. And that's because you know, the numbers are going to get seasonally adjusted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's going to be a reason for everyone to have an emergency meeting and some money will be out there. But if, if a government spent, and the United States spent $3.5 trillion so far on just relief to corporations, relief to individuals, and I know it was needed by so many. Don't get me wrong. Of course it was needed. But that money was spent and and now there might not be anything left. And if those rates go up, the tenures at 0.7, then houses, you know, the, the the people have already bought as many houses as they're going to buy. They've already done the work they want to do on their home. Uh, and, you know, and who am I to speculate on any kind of second wave of coronavirus? But the kids, I know, think about what's going on at the colleges. Right. And they're closing down for two weeks here or a week here. Think about what happens. There's only a few days left before the majority of K through 12 returns to school across this country. And all bets are off if it turns out that they end up having to stay home. And the companies in New York have begged de Blasio to make sure that the kids go back to school. But he also has a teacher's union, de Blasio, our mayor. He also has a teachers' union that's saying you've got to watch out for our right. safety for and safety. our health. Yeah. So you know you have stalemates across the board here, and then you have these stocks like Illinois Tool Works, you know, and and that I love that that is just sort of you know just just has yes up thirty nine percent on the year in fifty two weeks. Or I still love Valvoline. 
People right. still need to put oil in their car. You've heard me talk about these. Right. And we, we didn't even get, it. and we have to let you go, and we didn't even get to talk about Chewy, which is our favorite thing. Hillary and Kramer, you know. <laughs> thank you so much. We really appreciate it. President and Chief Investment Officer at A&G Capital Research, author of Game Changer Investing, How to Profit from Tomorrow's Billion Dollar Trends. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.